Note, note that a non-musician picked that song. <laughs> well, we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 9. Let's ask you to turn your Bibles with me. And we're in the middle of the series that we're calling The Church in the World, asking the question, what, what in the world is Jesus sent us into the world to do? What, what are we called to do together as a church community who have been saved by grace? And so that's, that's what we talk about. First, we're, we're founded by grace to love one another for the nations. And then we saw that we're supposed to be a hospitality-based and focused community as we experience God's hospitality and we extend it to those around us. And last week we talked about being a serving community, one that says we're here for each other, but also for the community in which God has placed us. And this morning we're going to talk about being a praying community um, for the place that God has placed us. <laughs> it's, it's a natural extension of what God had said in Jeremiah 29, that we should work for the welfare, pray, work for the peace of the city, work for Babylon. But he also says to pray for it. And here in our text this morning, you're going to get to see what God's heart is for a city, for a group of people that's rejected him. As, as Christians, we talk about the gospel, and there's good news and bad news. Right? The good news is that God has loved us as we are in Christ. And the bad news is, is that we fully deserve the judgment that fell on him. And so that the judgment is a real thing that we have to talk about. And that shapes, then, how Jesus sees. And so let's read it, and we'll see what, what we're going to learn and, and hopefully grow in this morning. So it's Luke chapter 19. We're going to read 35 to 48, and we'll get the whole context. But we're going to focus on 41. <coughs> this is the word of our God. And they brought this colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people 
we're hanging on his words. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would <coughs> send your spirit to open our eyes, that, that we wouldn't be blind on this day of your visitation, this day of grace. Help us to see the glories of the gospel and the plight of our neighbors, that we might love as Jesus has loved us, and that you would use this time in your mercy to mold us into a praying community, a community that recognizes that for anyone to believe this gospel, we need a supernatural work of your spirit. It's, it's that for which we ask right now in Jesus' name. Amen. We, I chose the hymn, Did Christ for Sinners Weep on Purpose, because it has this wonderful line, um, Behold the Son of God in tears, the angels are wondering, the angels wondering see. And it's this whole idea that out of everything that's happening all around us, I mean, that the, the magnitude of the cosmos, just what people do, the beauty in the world, what the angels are most focused on is the fact that a holy and just God um, would love and take the judgment for sinners, his enemies. And so we need to have that in perspective, that this... Even though we're going to talk about the bad news this morning of the gospel, it's not separated from the good news of his mercy. These are the things that the angels long to look, as it says in 1 Peter 1.12. Right, these are the things that we as a church are called to hold on to, but also to, to talk to our neighbors about. Right, to, to evangelize, as they say it. I mean, the, several years ago, there was a man named Penn Gillette who uploaded a video to YouTube. You might have heard it by now. I think this was in 2010. Penn Gillette is a, a magician, a performer, an entertainer, but he's also come out publicly and as an atheist several times. I mean, you can watch his videos online. And, um, but <laughs> what the story he tells is how he was at a show, and afterwards a man came up um, and gave him a Gideon Bible, a New Testament in Psalms, with a note in it with all these different ways you could contact him. And the man came up to, to Penn and said, you know, I'm sort of proselytizing, I'm evangelizing, and I'm not crazy, uh, I'm a believer, I'm a businessman, I have my own business, but I want you to, to read this, I think it'll help you. And Penn looks into the camera on this YouTube video and says, you know, it was wonderful. I believe he knew I was an atheist, but he looked me in the eyes he truly complimented me on the show, and then he said this. I've always said, this is the atheist speaking, not me. I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, because if you believe in a heaven and hell, and that unbelief means you will not have eternal life, and you really think it's not worth telling, because it's going to make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share the gospel with them? If you know that hell is real, how much do you have to hate them to someone to not warn them? Because if there is a truck bearing down on you and you don't believe me, there's a certain point in which I just tackle you. And this is much more important than that. That's an a incredible statement for someone who doesn't believe to make because he's standing here say, telling to you and to me that if you believe that eternity is a real thing, that it is as real 
right, as, as the people next to you, then we should talk about it. And in our text, Jesus isn't saying if, he's saying it is real. That God's judgment is something that breaks into real time and space and it fell on Jerusalem uh, several, well, thousand years ago. But Jesus here is saying that because eternity, because because judgment and grace and hell are real, that's why I'm weeping. It sets the stage then for us for a really sobering passage of Scripture where Jesus sees a whole group of people, people who want to kill him. The same ones yelling Hosanna today are going to be screaming crucify him and at the end of the week. And Jesus just falls apart emotionally. And so I, I see this as a prayer. I see it as a lament. I'm saying, God, why, why, is, why won't these people respond and as we look at this, I mean, it, it would be really easy just to beat us over the head with it. <laughs> but I, I think everybody, it doesn't matter whether, whether you are an unbeliever and really struggle with this whole idea of, of eternal judgment, or whether you've been a believer your whole life and have, you know, have great pride in the fact that you've spoken the gospel to unbelievers. And when you see Jesus weeping for people who are going to kill him, I mean, this is an otherworldly kind of sorrow. You know, all we can do is sit and watch the emotions of the perfect God-man and say, God, teach me to see like you see, because I don't see that way, myself included. I mean, our, the leadership of your church would confess the same thing. Because I'm, we're like you. You, know, you. you live your life. You have your responsibilities. You have your fears. You have... Everything going on. So you go to work, you go to the store, and you're just consumed with your own life and, and business. And eternity is a distant thought. I mean, I'm a pastor. I do think about these things. But it's not, I'm like you. If somebody cuts me off, I get mad. <laughs> or I'm, I'm standing in line at the store, and I'm more worried about you know, how long I'm going to be there. I'm not worried about the eternal salvation of the cashier as much as I should. And so, Father, forgive us. Right? We, need, we need help with this. But there's nothing like the compassion and mercy of Jesus in the face of horrible, horrible judgment here. Because who do you know is able to put two, two opposite things that close together? Tears and judgment. Power and compassion. As you read it, I mean, Jesus said this, this city of Jerusalem is going to be torn to the ground. And he's looking... The kind of power Jesus describes is a power that's going to use the Roman Empire to destroy the city of Jerusalem for the sin of rejecting Christ. And if you read the history, it's horrible how it went down. And at the same time, you have the tenderness not to laugh, not to take these things lightly, I mean, he's crying over the same people who are going to crucify him, saying, if only you would have known the things that would have brought you peace. So we read earlier in Luke 13, I would have gathered you like a mother hen protecting your chicks if you just would have accepted us, accepted me. And so this is a, in some ways it's a holy place because you're getting a, a glimpse right into the heart of the God of the Bible. 
He says, I am compassionate, slow to anger, but I do also visit sin on people who reject me. The judgment is a real thing. I mean, this, this judgment of Jerusalem points to the, the judgment that will take place at the end of all things when God will call everyone to account for their actions and their thoughts and their deeds, sending them to heaven or hell. And, uh, the way C.S. Lewis puts it, I mean, it's going to get to that last day and all those who, who have been loved by Christ are going to say, thy will be done. And those who, who've rejected him, God's going to say to you, fine, your will be done and send them away. And I know this is uncomfortable. <laughs> it's hard for me to, to spend a lot of time thinking about this and talking about it because I think you've figured out by now, even in the few months we've been together, I'm not the one who's going to stand up and, and yell like the prophets in the Old Testament. <laughs> I'm much more, I would much rather draw you to the beauty of what the gospel is than poke you with sticks <laughs> in, the gen, in the direction of, of the cross. But this topic is so important that, that as you read the New Testament, Jesus talks about hell and judgment more than anyone else in the whole Bible. He was constantly talking about it, and people were hanging on his every word. And so the obvious question that we have to face before we dig in here is how can we claim that God is a loving God and send people to hell? How do judgment and love go together? How could God punish people for their sincerely held beliefs and actions? John 3.18 puts it this way, which says, all who believe in the Son, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, the only Son of God. You know, I know this is a big question in our culture. So that they assume, and maybe you do as well, that if you believe in the doctrine of hell, you have to be a judgmental person. That you're going to be narrow you're going to be less loving, that you're going to pull back from people different than you, that you're not going to treat people with the love and respect and honor that they deserve just by virtue of being human. That's the assumption. And yet when you see Jesus, he does the complete opposite. He weeps, and then he immediately marches into the city, into the lion's den, as we, so to speak. So that's my prayer as we, as we look at this text, that, that we would respond like Jesus, that if you really do believe in the doctrine of hell and judgment, it'll actually make you more tender and more gentle and more patient the more you believe it as a believer in Christ. I mean, and you'll become more emotional. And then that the effect of that is you can't not look at your neighbors the same way, and you'll pray for them differently. Um, times we'll weep, at times we'll rejoice, but the things of eternity will become much more important right here, right now. And so let's ask this question, how, how does Jesus' weeping over judgment make us as a church and as individuals more tender and more able to see one another, to see our neighbors? 
And the best way I think we can do that is asking, ask this big question, why is Jesus crying? So let's look at the context here. The context is uh, the triumphant entry. It's what, we, what they traditionally have called it. The multitude of Jesus' disciples are walking alongside Jesus as he sits on a colt. They're coming into the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is riding on a donkey coming from down a mountain. I believe it's east of the city. And everyone is celebrating. Rejoicing, singing, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna, praises to our God. I mean, they're singing, they're dancing. They're quoting a psalm, it's Psalm 118, and everyone's celebrating the peace that they think Jesus is going to bring to the city of Jerusalem. In that, in, that, in that day, Jerusalem was part of the Roman Empire, and so part of the, the thinking was, oh, finally, here is someone powerful enough to kill our enemies, to destroy the Romans, to give us freedom, to give us the peace that the Old Testament had, had promised. And there's so much joy and celebration that with Jesus coming, Jesus says that even if the disciples were quiet, the stones would cry out. All of creation would join in, not just the people. And I, I know it's a poetic statement, but I also think it's somewhat literal. That this is the king that, that the cosmos is longing for. It's saying that the, when the right king has finally arrived, even the created order will rejoice because everything will be made right. Mountains will sing, it says in the Psalms, and the trees will clap. Your pets will, will celebrate with you. <laughs> that the king is here to bring shalom, and as we talked about last week, shalom is where everything is right. Between God, between man, between creation, everything will flourish. And while everyone is happy, Jesus comes, he sees the city, and that, that's when he cries. Everyone's rejoicing, and Jesus is, is falling apart. And while they see the glory of Jerusalem, the greatness of the city, they see the walls, they see the temple, the place where God has dwelled. This is where King David lived, and all these great promises came, and they had this wonderful history, and they would see these white stones and the, this magnificent golden dome of the temple. And all Jesus could see was destruction. The future, the vision of what was going to happen. And he weeps. And he falls apart. And so why does he do that? I think first, and most, one of the most important things, is you're seeing the emotional life of a perfect human being. This is, a, this is an important theological point. Jesus cries because he's human like you or me. I mean, he is God come as a person. He's fully God and fully man. But this is what people do. When you see something horrible, you, f you cry. I cry. You feel compassion. Your, your heart goes out to them, as we say. Yeah, we've all seen those um, the videos of like World Vision and, and other organizations asking for money to provide food and, and, and health relief for, for people who are sick and dying. I mean, the first time I visited the children's ward in a, in a hospital in rural Uganda, and 
That's what it was. It was small children with IV ports to fight the malaria. Um, swollen faces because they had lymphoma and they're just disfigured. And also just the, by our standards, the unclean conditions of the hospital. It was the best hospital in, in that part of the world and people, families had walked for miles just to get health care for their children. And one, one of the ladies I talked to said, I, I have to make the decision between eating and, and buying medicine for my children. And you see that I mean, I, I cried. Because <laughs> it's one thing to talk about it, it's another thing to see it. And to be fully human, to see some, something horrible, you weep. And that's who Jesus is, and that's what he's doing. When he looks at the city, when he sees Jerusalem, he sees sinners. He sees people who, who are going to die. And he loves them, and in compassion he cries over them, because he cries, he knows he's going to be rejected, despised, but he's weeping because in their blindness he knows, he, he's crying over his own rejection. But he's weeping because he's human. It's an it's a incredible picture to say that Jesus, God with us, this great high priest, it's the kind of God who can't not be moved by your sorrow and suffering. His heart goes out to you in compassion. As you read the Gospels, that is the chief description of Jesus. He saw and his heart moved with compassion. So it's an important point. Remember, in your suffering, in your sorrows, in your hunger, thirst, and poverty, Jesus feels along with you. And as you think about your loved ones who don't know Christ, Jesus feels that pain of rejection as well. Because as he sits sovereignly on the, in the throne of heaven on the right hand of God, he's still human and he still feels. As the scriptures say, in all your afflictions, Jesus is afflicted. Which is a, a wonderful mystery to say that that God identifies with your pain. You could see it in, in Acts. You remember when, when Saul was blindsided by Jesus on the road to Damascus. It knocks him off his horse and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's actually chasing down Christians. Jesus says, the suffering of my brothers and sisters is my suffering. To be human is to cry. To be perfectly human is to cry. And I think it's an important point for us, especially us as men who don't like to show emotion. I mean, some of us do more than others. It's just to say that there's no shame in crying over what's wrong with this world. And part of, part of how you know you're growing in your own understanding of the grace of the gospel is you're going to be both happier and sadder at the same time. Sadder because you can't not be moved by the suffering of others. And knowing what Jesus has promised to do, which is to make all these sad things come untrue. And happier, knowing that this is not the end, because you know you have a guaranteed place in this city of no more suffering and sorrow with Jesus. So Jesus weeps because he's human. Second, Jesus cries over our lack of knowledge, is what he says. 
cries over our ignorance, if I could say it that way. He says in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's saying, you just didn't know. You couldn't see it. There was a, a hilarious and sad video that popped up this past week of a Minnesota Vikings fan. He's celebrating the winning field goal over the Seahawks. He's screaming, he's dancing, he's jumping around until everyone turned around and said, sorry, buddy, they missed. <laughs> the field goal kicker missed the kick that would have won the game. And that's, that's exactly what's happening in Jerusalem is they're celebrating a victory that they're not going to share in. And Jesus is weeping because they don't know the peace that they could have if they would respond to him in, in repentance and faith. <coughs> I think you could say that Jesus is, is weeping, he's emotional, because he knows that they're looking for the wrong kind of peace. Temporary, like right now kind of peace. Not a peace horizontally with their God. If they wanted the peace of the king of kings with a sword in his hands, dripping with the blood of his enemies, instead of a crucified Messiah who says, your sins are forgiven. And you could say it this way, that they didn't want the Prince of Peace himself, they just wanted his benefits. They wanted, they wanted the power that the king came to bring, but they didn't want Jesus himself. And the humbling part is, is that's how we all live our lives. We, we have this vision of peace of what we would like our lives to be and say, if I only had the power to make that be, if I had the money, I'd be more comfortable. Or maybe I could get the right doctors. Or if I had more success, if I, if I could have the power to forgive myself, is what we say. Or if I had the power to make the people around me nicer, <laughs> then I'd like them more. Or if I had the power, maybe I'd get a little bit more respect around here. You know, all these different ways of saying, if I had the power, I would make peace for myself. This is me as well. And all these things, comfort, power, wealth, respect, family, these temporal things of peace, which are very good things, Jesus knows, and this is why he's crying, they're, they're absolutely meaningless if you do not have peace of conscience with your God, the one who made you. And really, the reason we don't have peace is because of the things we've done in pursuit of our peace. And here's a helpful illustration, I think, that, that's helped me deal with God's judgment Francis Schaeffer is the one who came up with it. I can't claim to be original. But he often used to describe this. How, can, how is God's judgment fair? How can God judge people for trying to make their life better? The kind of things we're talking about. And he said this, you know, picture it this way. Everyone is born with an invisible tape recorder around their neck. And that every time you and I say... You ought, this is how you should live. Every time we speak a law, a command, an expectation out of our mouth, the recorder records it. When he's talking about a tape recorder, I don't know if you remember what those things are. 
MP3 recorder. <laughs> and he said, you know, at the end of all things, what's going to happen is God's going to pull that invisible recorder off your neck. And you say, how did that get there? <laughs> He's going to hit play. And every time then that you will hear, you ought to be nice to your neighbors. Do unto others as you would do for yourself. Every time we say, you know, you really shouldn't text and drive. You really shouldn't, you should, you should have a clean house. You should respect others. You should be tolerant. All these rules that we make up for ourselves and those around us. I mean, the scriptures tell us <coughs> that if, even if God were to use that as the standard to judge us, we would fall short. And that his judgment would be fair to hold you to your own standards. And that I know you don't even have to wait for the end of all things, that we have that invisible recorder playing in our head that affects our peace, playing back our failures, playing back the ways we know we have let ourselves down. And ultimately, the scriptures say, was a sin against a, a holy God. It's showing us that the work of the law, God's expectation from every human being, is actually written on your heart, and we know it. But we don't run to him. We run after the other things that we think will finally give us peace. If only you would have known, Jesus says, the things that make for peace. There's a place in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul says, The creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of sons of God. For then the creation will be free from its corruption. And what it's saying is, we already said, right? the trees, the mountains, the, our pets, everything is longing for this peace that your heart longs for. But it, it first comes by making peace with God. Again, as C.S. Lewis puts it, <coughs> that we want something else, he says, that which can hardly be put into words. And that's why in the oldest stories we have peopled, put together the air and the earth and the water with all these stories, these fantasies. And that is why our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe, from something which we feel cut off from, is not just a fantasy. We really do feel cut off. But it's actually the truest judge of our current situation. For if we take scripture seriously, God will one day give us the morning star and the trees and hills will sing with us. And all those ancient myths and those poetry about the animals and the hills and all, everyone celebrating together, it's actually going to turn out to be truth and prophecy. And all he's saying, echoing the scriptures, is that everybody here has this deep longing for peace. But for things to be made right, we have to stop running. Run to the God who weeps over our ignorance. That's what Jesus is doing. Say, if only you would have known that it's not about stuff, it's about, it's about the God who cares. The God who is. And you're getting a picture then in Jesus what God is really like. Because all the way through the prophets, it's not all anger and, and rage and judgment. If you read it, you actually hear the tenderness of God as well. It's the same tension. Hosea chapter 11, how can I give you up, 
O Ephraim, says God, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I treat you? He uses names, but he said, how can I treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I destroy you? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He's saying, God, if only you would have known. I wouldn't have, have to pour out my righteous judgment on you. That's who God is. He sees you as not up there as a cranky deity saying, I can't wait to give it to you, right? to give you what you deserve. Anger isn't, isn't hate. I think that's important to know. <coughs> right, I mean, Becky Pippert puts it this way. It's really helpful. That God's actions and Jesus' predictions here are not the, this explosion of, of an irrational God. Because think about how you feel when you see someone you love who's been ravaged by unwise decisions. Who are making all the wrong decisions in their life. Do we respond with do-nothing tolerance? Like we do with strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. And God's wrath then isn't a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to, to the cancer that's eating out the insides of the people who he loves. Who he loves with his whole being. That's what judgment is about. It's the emotional reaction of a scorned lover or a despised father. Watching his children making all the wrong choices, knowing that if, if they would come home, he could make it right again. Because this is the father who has the power to do so. And if you look at Jesus' tears, these are the tears of the father and the prodigal son. The one who had his child say to him, give me your money, I wish you were dead. And he just lets them go. It's, it's, it's the humbling picture that sin really does grieve God. Jesus is afflicted by your affliction, even when you sin. <laughs> so why is this judgment coming down? We read it. It said it's because they didn't know. They didn't know that this was the day of God's grace, the day of visitation, it says at the end. And the day of visitation in the Old Testament was this one day when God was going to return and show up, and he was going to take away all the guilt and shame of his people and destroy all evil, obliterate it. It's the day when all things will be reconciled, when God's people will be vindicated, where people would see God, see his compassion, see his love, and see his justice all together. And the unfortunate, sad reality is that people in Jesus' day just couldn't see that it was right in front of them. So, I'm trying to think about how, how to get our minds wrapped around the reality of eternity and the love of our God You've got justice and mercy and trying to figure out how do these two things fit together. One of the helpful ways, I think this will, this will help, I think, broaden your appreciation, even as believers. Because if you're a Christian, you've already come through the judgment of God. Jesus bore that for you. 
But the reality is that sin does grieve God. And he is angry because of the destruction that it's causing. And so the, the famous sermon I think we all had to read in high school, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, has full of these terrifying images. Here's one. That the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow is made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation that keeps the arrow from being, being released. And he says, being made drunk with your blood, which is a graphic picture of saying, God's justice is aimed at sin. And the fascinating part is you, you hear that, it is a terrifying reality. But when Jesus came, he didn't talk like that. You notice? When he came, he said, I'm here to forgive sins. He essentially was saying, I'm here to show you that the God's war bow of justice is pointed at me, and it doesn't have to be released at you. I am here to be afflicted with your affliction. I will cry out in tears and pain so you can cry out in joy and have your guilt and shame forever removed. And so if you think about God's war bow, you see it every time after a storm. It's a rainbow. Remember, it's, it's, it's the clearest picture of judgment in the Old Testament. I know we're jumping all over here, but I want to give this beautiful picture where God destroyed the earth because he was grieved by sin. And he said, I will never again destroy everything, and I'm going to put my, the literal word is a war bow in the clouds. And so that every time you see a rainbow, it's actually... The bow and arrow pointed up at heaven. And so that meant for centuries, everyone, before Christ, before God came in Christ, when they saw a rainbow, they knew that God was saying, somehow the war bow of justice is going to be paid and God's going to pay the penalty. So when Jesus lands on earth <clears throat> and you see him dying on the cross, for sinners, the fullest expression of him being afflicted by our afflictions. He's saying, look, God's war bow has been fired. The blood has been spilled. It's been paid for. You can weep in joy knowing that God's judgment will never fall on you. And I'm crying because if you don't come, God's judgment will be real at the end of all things. So my question for you this morning is, do you believe that reality? Judgment and mercy meet at the cross. And if you're a Christian, if you put faith in the Savior, that means you have already been destroyed by that wrath, but never felt any pain. Hell has already happened in Christ. He went through it. And yet we still live here in this world, in the right now, where we have real needs, and our neighbors are completely unaware of this reality. Completely unaware that, that God's judgment is actually good news, because it's already happened in Christ. This is God's heart. 
If you stop and think about it, that, that invisible tape recorder has already been taken off your neck and been completely destroyed, never to be played again. The record is gone. If we could see it. So how do we, how do you become more tender and truthful as you think about doctrine in hell, as we reflect on Jesus' weeping over Jerusalem, which was destroyed? It really did happen. I'll spare you the gory details, but you can just go home and Google Josephus and the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, there were millions of people. Jesus shows us a tenderness and a truthfulness that, that have to go together. That he came into human history, he was a real person, which tells us that hell is real. His tears tell us that hell is real, and it also shows us that it does not have to be so for, for sinners. One pastor said, Behold, Jesus longs after your salvation. He sees no beauty or goodness in you. He sees and listens to your sins. And oh, he sees your hell, and therefore he weeps over you and says, Oh, that you would have known, you poor sinner, the message that gives peace. His wounds are healed now, but his heart still bleeds for sinners. So I say all of that. I mean, I have to stand and humbly confess, I, I don't weep over sinners. I don't weep over my sin as much as I should. If it affects my Savior that way. But what it should do is call us to be a praying community because that's what Jesus models for us here. Um, to hold out, truthfully, the reality of hell and pray for those who don't know Christ. Because look at the pattern of love. This is what I'll end with. Jesus sees, he cries, and then he goes right into the city. He goes into the city to give his life. That God's judgment actually draws him closer to sinners. It doesn't drive him away. And that's what we're called to imitate. Seeing is the first step, I think, for us to become a praying community. Because if you just walk by and never look, you don't think about them. We think about what it would be like to have someone come into your house and never say hi. To have a relationship, you first have to be seen. It's so simple and so hard. But if you look at people and you have this whole theology that we've been talking about, it will move your heart. It will move your soul as you realize you're called to love people as you have first been loved in Christ. And we'll pray. And this isn't something we can do alone. We've all had those conversations. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, that ends with, if I don't believe what you're believing, am I going to go to hell? And we just feel like this big. <laughs> but the loving thing to do is to say yes, to not be ashamed of it, and to weep with, along, right, right with them. Say, I love you. This is why I'm telling you. Robert Ray McShane was a pastor. We sang his song, I think, a couple weeks ago in Scotland who preached on this text. And it was said, as he was in his study preparing for all of his sermons, that people could hear him crying as he prepared to preach for sinners. 
And several years later, he left <laughs> to go on a, a mission trip. And while he was gone, this great outpouring of the Spirit just fell on um, the city of Dundee in Scotland. It was the weeping and praying that prepared that community for, for a whole lot of people to be saved, to be spared that awful reality. So my prayer is that God will make these things real. Part of, part of our DNA. And that we would be okay talking about it. And if you have questions, talk to us. Talk to your elders. Um, don't run away because, because this offends you. See the God who's chasing you. Let's pray. Father, it's been a humbling morning <laughs> to, to see the reality of judgment, but also the, the awesome weight of grace and mercy. I pray that as we lifted up Jesus high, our hearts will believe more deeply that we really are safe in his arms, that you have gathered us like a mother hen and protected us from the fires of your judgment. But I also pray that that would change the way we see. To be more compassionate than we are now. And that the Spirit would change us and mold us. And that we would be a church that loves you more deeply because the gospel is true. I pray this. Pray for your help. Pray for your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>